1821, Amherst College was founded with the mission to educate, quote, indigent young men of piety and talents for the Christian ministry. In the past 200 years, how has this mission been delivered and how has it evolved? Managing news editors Kaylin McQuilkin and Sonia Shanjay-Wides pose us this question and in a two-part investigative series entitled Accessing Amherst, they deliver us an answer. The fact that Amherst is the second most diverse liberal arts college in the nation, according to Niche, is a worthy achievement. But as of 2017, 60% of the student body comes from the wealthiest 20%, and 21% comes from the wealthiest 1%. These statistics throw into question Amherst's claim to diversity. What work has been done to diversify Amherst, and how have these efforts fallen short? Today, Kaylin and Sonia will bring us the story. It's Wednesday, May 11th. I'm Sam Spratford, and you're listening to The Student Sums It Up. Stay tuned for the final stories of the spring 2022 semester. Just a quick side note here, we were experiencing some technical difficulties during the interview, but I really hope you still take the time to listen, because this is probably my favorite episode from this whole semester. Um, I am sorry in advance about the subpar audio quality. Um, so first off, I'd love it if you guys could just introduce yourselves for those who don't know you. My name is Kaylin. I'm a junior here at Amherst, and I'm a managing news editor for the news section. Hi, I'm Sonia Shajay-Wides. I'm a first year at Amherst. I'm also a managing news editor for the news section. Nice. Wait, I can't say nice to meet you guys because I already know you, but thank you for, thank you for joining me today. <laughs> So nowadays you see Amherst talking about diversity everywhere you look, from admissions brochures to college communications and even in like big like news outlets. Um, My first question for you guys is when did diversity really become a priority for Amherst? So it's interesting because I think we've found some really different answers to that. One thing that uh, Dean of Admissions Matt McGann mentioned to Kaylin is that a lot of that prioritization began when the college went co-ed. But I would say that initiatives um, to increased diversity here definitely started way before then. Amherst was actually the, the had the second um, black graduate of any college in the United States. Um, obviously that, you know, is one person. I think that there, it has kind of been something that's been talked about here by black students, by just student activists in general for a very long time. And what I learned from talking to Professor Stephen Bradley um, in the Black History, Black Studies and History Department um, is that the, in the late 1960s, diversification really started being a question for a lot of colleges. Historically, the, the way that admissions worked was that like you would basically get nominated by alumni. So obviously that led to some pretty cyclical admissions. And like up to two-thirds of the class would come from prep schools. So a lot of that started to change as there were conversations about you know racial politics more broadly. Um, I think that something we really gathered from doing research in the archives was that a lot of the change was brought on by student activists. Yeah, yeah. Not just about admissions in particular, uh, but just about like the world and the United States in general. There was a really big culture of action, and that I think motivated the school to do things. I think 
it sounds like the school's also pretty scared of students. Someone mentioned a story to us about how, like, in 1969, there was a moratorium on classes to talk about, like, the Vietnam War and racial politics, and that really came about because members of the student government went to the administration and were like, look, like, if you don't do something like this, like, everyone's going to, like, occupy your offices. And they were like, okay, like, we'll do it. And, like, holy shit. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting because yeah. I felt like as students and people across the nation were starting to more broadly think about these issues of racial inequity, then people and students at Amherst more specifically started to think about what Amherst's role in that was and how Amherst itself could make an impact in these um, in these ways, like in being in activism um, and supporting student activism. So. Yeah, I think that's, like, an important part to look at how it was linked to, like, broader social movements. Yeah. I feel like also, I think, like, one really interesting component of it to me is that there were two different threads of motivation for this that got brought together a lot. And one was, like, this idea that Amherst, as an institution, had a responsibility to help just increase racial equality in the United States, and that education is a powerful machine to do that. Um, And so that could kind of bleed to some extent into this notion of, like, oh, Amherst is, like, helping underserved students Mm -hmm. um and you know that can go one or two directions in terms of like white savior ideas and assimilationist ideas but also you know like some very valid concerns about how amherst has a lot of power but i think also then there was especially from the student side a lot of argument about the fact that like diversity was itself just a value for um, education education, yeah right and like you know that's i think the more dominant um thing that they talk about now yeah like that's the main that was the main like argument when uh affirmative action was first ruled as like constitutional and i'm assuming i mean amherst just wrote an amicus brief for um affirmative action and um i'm assuming that's like an argument that they reuse in that amicus brief i haven't read it but yeah yeah and sorry one other note to add is that even in amherst's mission when it was first founded was to educate indigent young men of beauty and talents which means poor young men. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that part of thinking about class differences was is part of Amherst's mission, but I think the question is whether that became a priority or when that became a priority mm-hmm. or whether it can become a priority for Amherst. Um, because then also interesting part of that same founding statement was about sending people into the Christian ministry. So mm-hmm. you kind of see mm-hmm. the, the um, yeah. Paradox. Yeah, like it's that it's that uh, tension that Sonia was talking about between like, is this like a white savior, like assimilationist thing, or is this like a genuine, I don't know, a genuine value in of diversity? Yeah, I also think that like on that note, that like the the historical legacy, I think to me is really interesting because on the one hand you have this framing of like Amherst has always had this as its mission, and like what Matt McGann said to to us is that like. Sometimes in history, like, it's really strayed from that, but more recently it's been sticking to it more. Um, And I think that that is part of it, and that, like, you know, similarly to, like, other institutions in the United States, there's been a mission statement that, like, like, hasn't been followed through on, and, like, maybe now is starting to be followed through on. But I also think that, you know, in a more material sense, what we've been talking about is how, like, and and we're not the first people to talk about this, but, like, these elite institutions, these predominantly white institutions, the way that diversity is happening is that they are starting from, like, the structure of an elite white institution and then working to try to change that to make it more accommodating. Mm -hmm. Not sort of any sense of, like, thinking about how to start yeah it's not that it's not it's not like in 1821 amherst wrote this mission statement and was like we're going to structure our institution in a way that we accommodate black and brown people and poor people no um 
Yeah. And also, I think something that is worth pointing out about that mission statement is that it talks about poor young men. It doesn't necessarily talk about race. Um, And I think that's like I think that's like super telling. Um, and if anything, the mention of the Christian ministry yeah. has been just a like yeah. lack of mentioning race, but like that yeah. they were training people. It's a colonialist mission, yeah. Um, so I'd love it if you guys could go into, you were talking about how the 1960s was such a consequential decade. I mean, all over the country for these sorts of like, uh, these sorts of reckonings. But I'd love it if you could get into some of the specifics of the student movements that were happening at Amherst and how administration responded to them. Yeah. So, I mean, more broadly, student movements at Amherst in the 60s, like, focused on racial politics. They focused on um, the Vietnam War a lot. I think that it seems, I don't, you know, it's hard for us to pinpoint exactly when people started talking about yeah. diversification. Yeah. But one thing that was starting to happen in the 1960s was this program called A Better Chance, ABC, um, which basically the mission was to have students who are from, like, under-resourced communities who had been historically underrepresented in higher education, um, do like a summer program that then would allow them to like transition smoothly into private boarding schools, prep schools, mm. and then from there go to college. And there was a lot of push at Amherst among students to have Amherst College sort of sponsor a similar program to that mm-hmm. in Amherst, potentially in collaboration with other five colleges. There was some like resistance to that from the administration, and there's a lot of history even just on that note specifically. We've even gotten like emails since the article was published from mm. alumni being like, "There's so much more to this." So, wow, that's really interesting. Um, and I don't want to like pretend like I'm saying the whole story, but yeah, basically like there was just a lot of student pushing of that in like 1957, 68, 69. Faculty also started pushing for that, and then the dean of admissions, who is Eugene Wilson. Um, commissioned a couple of different projects to mm. sort of directly address that. One of them was he commissioned this report from an alum, a black alum named Sam Jackson, who had graduated like the year before. Uh, they paid him to go and like do a whole report on how Amherst could better serve like quote unquote underprivileged students. Yeah, they did that. And then there was also this thing called the Black and White Action Committee or BWAC, which was a group of students and faculty at the college. Um, there was one black student and one black faculty member. Um, and their task was to sort of like also pre- basically take requests from a bunch of different people in the community and present like sort of similar to how the committees work now, like present their recommendations for what should happen. Mm-hmm. And that was the first kind of formal attempt at yeah. doing that. And that it seems like was pretty public and talked about because if you look at the student, there were articles about BWAX proposals like all over it, um, which was super interesting. So one of their proposals was to do something similar to an ABC program in Amherst. They also just suggested a lot more outreach. They suggested hiring a black admissions dean. They suggested the formation of the Black Cultural Center in the Octagon, mm. which happened a year later and eventually became the MRC. One interesting quote from the Sam Jackson report kind of comes back to what we were talking about before about what Sonia was saying about the mission statement and the ways that Amherst has like made alterations to that statement, but maybe and like the founding of the college, but maybe not necessarily completely altered what it was founded on and so it felt like the sam jackson report sort of delved into some ideas like that Mm -hmm. so one quote from the report reads is amherst willing to permit entry to students who are radically different from its usual academically oriented middle class variety will amherst accept the value and validity of the divergent points of views and experiences these students will undoubtedly bring into the college community will amherst initiate a program that will lead to a truly interracial student body and then, then how far will Amherst go to meet and assist these young people? Yeah. Um, wow. 
and that so much of that resonates with like still what we're concerned about today and I was thinking back to what Sony was saying the BWAC (laughs) the BWAC proposals were they were diversifying administration right hiring a black dean of admissions um creating like safe spaces for black community on campus and what was the third one? Oh, doing outreach at underrepresented schools and all three of those are still like priorities today like like all three of those are still very much relevant so my next question for you is how did like the momentum of the 1960s like carry over into the following decades so this is honestly a little bit outside the scope of our article. We were primarily looking at the papers um, about the 1960s and the archives. I think, honestly, going into the 1970s, a lot of the activism focused on going co-ed. Um, but I, I was honestly really struck, just like you were, by the fact that like it felt like a lot of what we were reading could, could be lifted. Yeah, like we're just regurgitating the yeah, same yeah. arguments. and Even like one of the most interesting things to me was we, there was this faculty letter that was sent by like some faculty to the broader mm-hmm. faculty that questioned... like. The, I think that, I don't, paraphrasing, they were like, we're questioning whether Amherst, some of Amherst's like, priorities and admissions are working to separate mm. us from like mm-hmm. the, the people that we want to bring in. And so they talked about how the SAT might be a kind of imperfect metric for admission for all the reasons we know that the SAT doesn't really repre- like represent much more than your situation. But like that was fascinating because they wrote the letter in 1967 and Amherst didn't go test optional until 2020. You know, these questions have been of concern and they haven't really changed. You know, a lot has been done. You know, part of what we put in the article is like, you see how the demographics have changed since then. And they've changed a lot. And that's mm-hmm. been because they've responded to those questions. But mm-hmm. there's, it's kind of- I feel like it's it's those like structural like problems that are like continuing to haunt us no matter how much outreach we do, no matter how much like work we do to diversify the faculty. It's like the fact, and you guys say this at the end of the first part of your investigation, like this requires that we re, like true diversity requires that we reevaluate what types of people quote unquote deserve to come to Amherst. Um, and that's something that's much bigger than any one program is going to fix. Yeah, and I do think it's, it's interesting because at the same time that all of that is true, like if you look at the graphs that we were able to, Sonia created tracking changes over time, yeah. these changes did lead to really substantial and really significant changes mm. just in the literal makeup of the student body, which doesn't in, by any means mean that the problem hasn't been solved. Yeah, as is clear in the fact that the yeah. hands are still the same. But I think it is really notable that Mm-hmm. these changes did happen and I think it's important to also recognize that because it shows why yeah. making steps towards these demands is so important yeah, yeah. exactly and and like we learned a lot just about like Amherst like you know amongst these kinds of schools tends to actually be on the forefront yeah of, like, yeah yeah, yeah. Changes. like Amherst was the first like Questbridge partner Amherst was like you know most recently and famously we just you know got legacy got rid, got rid of, legacy. of legacy yeah um and so it's, it is cool to sort of see, like, when things really, like, you can even track in years, like, when you look at the graphs, like, you can see, I, I honestly was going to do this, and then I just realized that I forgot, but I was going to, like, annotate the graphs a little to, like, put, like, dots on, like, a year that a certain thing got into, yeah, 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 or, like, that kind of thing, um, I didn't do that, but. Yeah. Maybe if you want, we can piece it together. <laughs> <laughs> and um, for those listening, I'll put a link to the online articles so that you can see all these graphs yourself and understand, get a visual about what we're talking about here. Um, this the part of the second part of your investigation, the part that's being published this week, focuses on 
you know, like like Kaylin was saying, like both the successes and like the shortcomings of Amherst, uh, the state of diversity at Amherst. Um, and you did extensive interviews with students from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, and what you found was that uh, the specific like application process people go through and the specific like type of school they went to before Amherst really impacts the experience that they have once they're here and so I was hoping that you could you know provide some of the insights that you got from those interviews. So for the reporting for this section of the article we talked with 10 different students as well as some different members of admissions and we learned about the different ways that students heard about Amherst uh, like learned about it in the first place and then just sort of how they came to Amherst and then we also heard a lot more in-depth thoughts about how the path that they took to Amherst or had to take to get to this place now shapes their experience being here and what they think about the institution in general. So for more information about these specific people and their stories, you can look at the article, which will have lots of information about it. Yeah. Um, but we can summarize here just a few examples. The ways that people learned about Amherst in the first place ranged from just finding it on a simple Google search because it had a D3 track program um, from learning about it through various different types of community-based organizations, some of which were intended for public school students, some of which started at younger ages helping get students into uh, private schools. Um, and then others, other students learned about Amherst through some of the more direct outreach programs such as uh, Access to Amherst. Yeah, well, I think that like something that I've was really considering like in going into writing this article is that I think that the way that the admissions process is designed, not just at Amherst, but like the college admissions process in general, is that like you do your own research, but what that often means is that you have people around you who can suggest places for you to look at. It's very simple. Um, and that's obviously not the case. And so whether it's Amherst's own outreach or whether it's other people in people's communities, there usually you know needs to be some sort of like connection made, especially when people aren't from the Northeast um, or aren't from backgrounds where they're like really involved in the world of elite education. Um, so one thing that we I guess learned a lot by talking to people in admissions and students is that admissions works a lot with community-based organizations um, that are doing like when it comes to you know like doing outreach to students from historically underrepresented backgrounds. Like Amherst will work with community-based organizations that are already kind of doing the work of bringing those students into like a more educationally equitable space. And that can really vary what those organizations look like. One of them um, is Prep for Prep, which is a New York City-based organization that basically like it's a summer and school year like academic program, basically like do really rigorous academic prep to then like, well, it's also like a very selective admissions process, like thousands of kids apply and only like a hundred get in. Um, and then you get matched to, or not matched, but like you, you basically get guaranteed admission to like an independent private school. Um, and it's assumed that then they kind of have you from there. Um, like Prep for Prep offers additional support, but like really they're trying to get you into that place. And then they're trying to get you into the system that right, helps you, exactly. that helps you and succeed. Those schools have more than adequate resources. Yeah. <laughs> you navigate the college process and, you know, in general. And, but Prep for Prep also provides additional assistance. Anyone who does Prep for Prep has a Prep for Prep college counselor in addition to their high school college counselor. But so Amherst works a lot with 
organizations like Prep for Prep, which, you know, I talked to Shaden Richards, who's a first-year vice president, was a Prep for Prep student, but then also actually worked at Prep for Prep. And he was saying that it's interesting because he doesn't, like, necessarily consider Amherst talking to Prep for Prep as, like, outreach, because they're very much tapped into that world. You know, what the admissions office told us is that usually it's sort of like they, it's a way for the admissions office to talk directly, like, not directly, but, like, talk to students through these organizations. You know, for example, if they're hosting access to Amherst, saying, like, hey, can you let your students know that we're doing this? Yeah, I think, like, that was really interesting. Um, And as far as, like, as far as how that, like, impacts things now, Jaden talked a lot about that. He said that, um, I'm just going to quote him, the thing that people say a lot here is, like, we're all here anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Um, And he disagreed with that statement. Yeah. Um, He said, I don't really want to be congratulated or anything. I don't want to pat on the back, but I've spent my life working to get to this place, and the education and the value of that education means a lot more to me than some of my peers. Um, And someone who echoed this was um, Maricela Alvarez, who's also a freshman, um, and she said that, she said, sometimes I do feel like the way that I got to college is kind of diminished. I put so much blood and sweat into shaping my portfolio to look a certain way, using myself in the process to go to a school where I know that after I graduate, I have a good chance of getting into med school or getting a job right after college. Um, yeah, I think that it's definitely interesting because just like what people emphasize is that like the, the comp, the comp, the complexity of their like pathways here doesn't just go away when they yeah. get here. Um, and for a lot of people here that are more privileged, even, you know, the college process is complicated for anyone. Like, it's a shitty process no matter what, but it's a lot more straightforward if you have, mm-hmm. you know, like, college-educated parents and you're in a community where everyone is, like, expected they're going to go to college for their whole lives and is looking at out-of-state schools and you're encouraged to apply to a bunch of different schools, even ones that, like, maybe reaches for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all these things that I think a lot of students here that come from more privileged backgrounds, myself included, like, would take for granted. Um... But having, like, going through the process differently, I think it just, what people have expressed is that it just, like, gives you a very different perspective um, on the stakes of being here. Mm. And that is something that doesn't get talked about because I think that, like, it's interesting because I think that at Amherst, like, it depends on who you are and who you talk to, but people here tend to be relatively open to talking about differences and differences in experience um, based on, like, the factors of your identity when you go here. But I think that on this specific notion, Jaden's right, that like people don't necessarily factor in the way that people got here. Yeah. It's just sort of like, okay, we're all here now. And even if we come from different backgrounds, like our processes of getting here would not have been that different. And we all have like the same mindset about being here. Exactly, exactly. And that was something that Jaden also really highlighted as like an impact of this. He, he brought up that like, People's journeys of getting here, like, kind of underscore the elements of social life here. Um, but from him, some people just don't really understand how valuable an opportunity this is and have no desire to take advantage of it. When looking at who is most involved in the community, it's probably a lot more diverse than the college itself, um, which I think is really interesting. And I mentioned to him, this was, like, a fact thing at my high school as well. I went to, like, a public high school in New York City that was, like, had, like, quite a bit of variety in terms of, like, where students came from. Um, and, like, a lot of the students that were like white and came from like upper middle class backgrounds were really not active in the school community at all whatsoever um and i don't think that that's like you know unilaterally the case here but i think that he's right that like there's just a different understanding of like the value of being here that comes from like yeah and i think that's just something that we have been talking about as we've been 
We've talked about so much on this episode. We've talked about the history of diversity at Amherst. We've talked about some of the uh, initiatives that they implemented in response to student protests. And then today we talked about, um, or sorry, not today. And then finally, (laughs) finally, we talked about the way that like these like diversity questions bleed over into student culture and like divisions within that culture. And um you guys have done such wonderful research and like I said, like got all of these amazing stories. Um, is there anything that you want to just like say at the end of all of this um, to wrap it up? It doesn't have to be something profound. It doesn't have to perfectly tie everything together. Just like, where is your head at right now? Having like knowing everything that you know. Yeah. I think for me, like my spirit, which is just that like, Amherst is fundamentally working from a framework that is seeking to take what was an incredibly limited structure of what this college was and who it served, Mm -hmm. and it's attempting to expand that structure. And so, you know, you really see the struggle in that, Mm -hmm. um, that comes from the default will always be the original form of this institution, which served rich white men. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we can make progress, but that is kind of always going to be the framework that we're starting from. And I think that I don't know the answer to how to deal with that. Um, yeah. But that's something that I've been thinking about. And the other thing I would say is just like, and this is not just about this article in general, but more generally, like, I think that, like institutions are just people, like made up of people. Um, yeah. And like Amherst is just made up of like a bunch of people that are making all these decisions. And, you know, like, I think that was something that I was really reflecting on when we were looking in the historical papers because yeah. in the face of it, it was like Amherst decided this, but really it was like Eugene Wilson, the dean, like writing letters yeah. of all these different like alumni and students and people writing to him and having conversations um and I think that some of that can get obscured but it just felt empowering to me to remember that um as we are in our current moment where there's a lot to be talking yeah. about and a lot to be making change on totally yeah and I think like totally related to that is just something that a lot of other students really emphasize in interviews too is that there's sort of this illusion that Amherst is the solution to these problems mm-hmm. or that Amherst becoming perfectly diverse is the solution mm-hmm. and like Sonia said it's not really even about Amherst as a singular like entity like it's the students who make it up it's the administrators who make the decisions it's the conversations that we have between us and like the individual stories that really make up this place that makes it what it is and so I think thinking about it in that sense that's more like person-based and story-based like how Sonia said is a really valuable way to think about how we can make meaningful change moving forward and think about um yeah for how we can make more meaningful yeah. change moving forward yeah awesome Sorry, I guess just like one last no thing yeah you're fine it's just like I think like that and this is kind of obvious but like there is nothing that is simple about this a lot of these questions can't really be divided into like who's doing what right yeah and I think that I even to some extent was kind of looking for that like well what is Amherst like yeah. doing wrong why are they not reaching like it's just kind of I mean I feel like that's a very like human it's a very real instinct yeah. Yeah. And, like but, thank but you for sharing that yeah. because it's like I'm, yeah. I'm sure like a lot of people are going to be listening to this and, like starting it up like ooh, I'm ready to like hear them hate on like yeah. x y and z yeah. and like obviously Amherst has done a lot wrong but I just think that it's like yeah I don't know like also, we're a really small college in, like, a country filled with, like, so many different, like, structures that enforce inequity and inequality. Yeah. And something that's been really interesting to me is to see, like, what Amherst is coming in, you know, like, 17, 18 plus years into people's lives. Um, like, what what factor, like, what, what are, how are they, like, stepping in? And it, I think that it's really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And 
you know, Amrith has a lot of power, and there's also, like, a lot that they can't control, and that's not to absolve them of any responsibility, but, like, there are just these structures that really get in the way, um, and you have to think of some, like, really creative solutions. So, yeah, yeah. that's a big takeaway for me. Mm-hmm. Along the way, part of what we learned was that rather than trying to, like, draw some conclusion with writing this article, like, this is just a comment even about the writing process, yeah. we realized that instead of sort of using the student source to try and illustrate what worked and what didn't, we were like, this is someone's life, like, this is... Yeah. Not we can't make a conclusion about one of Amherst policies using this like thirty minute conversation that we yeah, had, or even if yeah. it's someone who we know knew well, which was the case for some of the people we interviewed. Like, <laughs> um, we can't really these stories don't really provide concrete answers because of people's lives. And so I think that like what I learned going through this is also just that like since we don't really have this a concrete solution, it's really important to just listen to what people have to say and like have more of a dialogue yeah. and conversation. Yeah. I was going to say, like, as the listener here, um, (laughs) like, I I think from an outside perspective, I think what you guys have done is, like, illuminated, like, the complexity of these questions, like Sonia was saying, and started, like, opening the floor to some, like, more, I guess, just, like, empathetic and thoughtful dialogue about these issues, for sure. That's, like, my main takeaway is that everyone should just talk about this stuff a lot more. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, like, that was something that I talked about with Madi when we had our interview, because, like, you know, it was an interview, but she's also a close friend of mine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And we were just talking about how it's, like, it seems like this kind of, like, taboo thing to talk about. Um, And, but, like, you know, Amherst is pretty diverse, and, like, it's really cool that we all had really different journeys to getting here and it's also really cool that like in talking about them we can like learn more about our world and each other and like it just doesn't and pave the way to more change it's like anyone any favors to like feel scared to talk about these things with each other especially when we've had really different experiences yeah thank you guys so much for (laughs) i i just want to say this is the last uh episode of the student sums it up for the spring 22 semester thank you guys for joining me this has been awesome Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Lynn Lee, and to you all for making The Student Sums It Up a part of your week throughout this past semester. I'm Sam Spratford, and I hope you'll join me again next fall. In the meantime, make sure to visit our website, amherststudent.com and follow us on social media so you don't miss anything we're up to over the summer.